Welcome to the Power of Makeup, brought to you by Timely Business Management Software. In this episode, your host Lan talks to journalist, editor, and marketing lecturer Hannah Kane, who reveals how magazines have had to adapt to post-COVID times, the secrets every brand needs to know, and how she uses her passion for horses to switch off. What's funny is the first time I met you, I wasn't the editor of Phoenix Magazine. I was a lowly journalist at London Fashion Week. Oh. And I was reporting backstage. Um, I think, uh, was it for the London Fashion Week Daily or something like that? And I had to interview you, and you were sort of running the show, running your team, and it was very impressive. So that was the first time I think I met you. And then obviously, you know, I'm a big fan of your work. You're, you know, insanely creative. Um, so when I was looking for a beauty director for Phoenix magazine, you were the first person I turned to, of course, and you were with me from, you know, from the very beginning, I think from issue two. So, you know, we've always had that great relationship working together. And then, you know, my background, um, well, as you mentioned, initially law and then journalism. So then obviously when it came to your books and you were looking for somebody to help with the copy. Happy to help, you know, happy to be involved. I mean, so, you know, I think it's quite important because in my head, like somebody, because I've got friends who started off in like, in that sort of world where it's, you know, it's that one of those normal jobs, mm-hmm. you say, you yeah. know, like a lawyer, a doctor, accountant, yeah. and then, you know, you've transitioned into this fashion world, you know, yeah. how do you feel like the change mm. from, from, from that aspect? Well, I, I've always loved the fashion industry, you know, um, I've always been into magazines, I always wanted to be a writer, really. And then I did study law, because I thought it was really important for me to have a very academic undergraduate degree. And the thing about law is it's comprised of human stories, there's always a human narrative to every case that gets to court. Um, so I was always interested in that side. But then my family's in the fashion industry. So my father is in retail property. My mum was in interiors to do with shop fitting. My brother is, uh, as you know, of course, a tailor. Um, so I've always been interested in that side. And then I did my postgraduate certificate in fashion and lifestyle journalism at the London College of Fashion, where I'm now a lecturer. Yeah, I mean, they're <laughs> yeah. lucky to have you, to be honest. Oh, um, yeah, I do see you writing a novel and all sorts. And I'm always Ooh. like, when is your book coming? Um, so it's amazing yeah. that you were a part of mine. Um, mm. You know, and that's the other thing as well. Like, again, you're one of these people that I admire as well because your family are so involved in your projects. And it was mm. so surprising, you know, because you're very together and you've got your space as well um, in central London, you mm. know. So I never knew that about you, which is amazing. Yeah. So, you know, why, you know, growing up, you know, were your family really supportive? Yes, you know, I think they would have liked for me to have, you know, a nice, stable, successful lawyer job. But my family is very entrepreneurial, so they're always very supportive of me running my own businesses. So as well as running the magazine, I've had my own branding consultancy and public relations agencies. I currently have a creative agency called Hack Media as well, um, which is the sort of commercial output for Phoenix magazine working on client projects. So, you know, they've been really successful. I think they've 
their philosophy has always been do whatever you're the most passionate about because then you'll put you know 110% into yeah. it and that's how you be successful you know you may as well be really motivated by whatever it is that you do and what what's really interesting as well um, you know you've do horse riding <laughs> yes <laughs> I do so is it is that something you've just always wanted to, to do um, you know, as a kid, yeah. you imagined yourself as a successful... I mean, because you've won competitions, right, with your horse? Yeah, so um, it's so kind of unconnected uh, yeah. to my fashion side. But I've ridden horses since I was six years old. Wow. And I was very lucky to grow up in a place that, you know, where we could keep horses, even though my family wasn't into horses at all. Mm. Um, and then I ended up jump, show jumping up to Grand Prix level. Wow. When I was under 21, I lived in Belgium for six months and jumped on the continental circuit. Um, and then I, you know, my job for a while was buying and selling and breaking horses. Um, wow. Well, it's, it's known as breaking, but it's just training. Yeah. You know, we form a partnership and you train the animal. And yeah, it's a real side passion of mine. And I actually do have some horses in for training at the moment. It's a bit of a side hustle. Um, yeah, back out in the countryside. So, But it's, you know, it teaches you discipline. It teaches you hard work. And it's a really nice uh, counterpoint to sitting at a desk all day mm. long, you know, being outside, being with the animals. Yeah. Yeah, I often find like, you know, you don't always have to. Um, be a certain way you know everyone knows that you, you can be yourself and I think it's quite nice that people can see that you've come from that technical background but you're also creative but also have this the horses as well um, and that your whole family is involved with your projects and you can all collaborate right together yeah so Josh and I have done um, a few events together you know I'm so so proud of how much he's accomplished as mm. a designer um, and then my other brother, Joel, is a music producer and DJ. So from my writing side, that's really influenced me. Yeah. You know, I love writing about fashion. And I love writing about music, specifically electronic music. And a lot of that's down to, you know, my brothers being influenced by them. Um, yeah, you know, I think all of us, to some extent, are a product of our environment. And then, you know, you develop yeah. your own personal interests. I was just thinking, like, because you've got a good eye for it, seemingly from Phoenix magazine in spotting next new talent in music because mm. everyone that we've worked with collaborated mm -hmm. with um I mean they've gone on to do really well, on really to do well. Yeah. like it was Gemma Chan um what's Sophie um uh, from Game of Thrones Sophie Turner was Sophie we Turner did her first um, cover yeah um Anne-Marie oh, Anne so, so many amazing names Georgia Smith we were one of her first oh covers God, yeah. um Gosh, like so, so many amazing women that I've been privileged to feature over the course of Phoenix magazine, you know. So the brand ethos for Phoenix is it's a style, culture and philosophy magazine for um, free thinking women and non-binary humans, as we say. And I think your so, magazine was actually one of the first to be like that, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. Or what know, it stood for. Yeah, it's got a very strong concept and that's something that I'm looking to bring more out mm. of in know more you know my one of my real passions as a writer is philosophy you know I'm mm. a real philosophy nerd which is why I'm really pleased that I now get to teach kind of elements of MA philosophy at the London College of Fashion yeah. as part of their research proposal module um, yeah so you know it's it's been really interesting and then the magazine you know I think a lot of it to do with casting and featuring talent is a combination of 
you know, having those connections with the record labels and the mm. publicists, and then also listening to music and just being really immersed and asking, you know, going out to clubs and gigs, maybe less so than I used yeah. to, but still being really interested in what people are into, you know, what people think's cool, ultimately, you know, what, what are people liking in terms of fashion or music? Yeah, and, you know, what's your relationship with makeup? Because obviously, mm. when you were doing your magazine, you're always drawn to the makeup side, you're always asking questions, and so, Gosh, yeah. you know, what's your memory, or, or why have you got that sort of draw yeah. to, the, to the makeup side? Well, I absolutely love makeup. I mean, I one of my very first unglamorous jobs was working nights in a service station. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> Did not know that. Yeah, no, yeah. this is not one that goes on the CV. But you know, the the jobs you do when you're 17 or something like that. Yeah. And um, I used to spend all of my money on magazines at the end of my shift. And I was, you know, I don't, I have brothers, but I don't have sisters, so I was always obsessed with these makeup tutorials. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm quite artistic. I love to paint. So the idea that you could change your look by, you know, these artistic techniques really fascinated me. Um, and I think like lots of people who are into makeup, I wasn't very comfortable with my skin when I was a teenager and a bit older, you know, so I looked at it as a way of camouflaging that mm -hmm. as well. And also, you know, when you're trying to find your identity, I went through various phases, as I'm sure lots of young women do. You know, one minute I was kind of grungy and then a bit punky and then I had a bit of a rockabilly phase and all of the different styles in terms of fashion and makeup that go with these looks really fascinated me and in fact that's kind of segues into the book that I'm working on now um, for a publisher which will be talking about all of the kind of semiotics of these different styles mm. you know what do we mean when we say that something is utility or Americana or mm. Uh, Very interesting. Or rockabilly, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So as an entrepreneur, I guess you are just like your family. Um, and your mum is very similar as well. She just has a red lipstick and, mm. and that as well. Um, My mum is so classic. You know, she's such an amazing style inspiration. I wear jackets of hers from the 80s to teach at the university. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, because I guess you growing up being quite boyish, I suppose, mm. has giving you that sort of grunge sort of vibe for your makeup, whereas your mum is very classic. Yeah. Um, so did she teach you anything about, did she try and enforce you? Because I remember my mum like trying to make me in a certain way. Not really. I mean, what's funny is I think I've evolved more to be like my mum. So my mum's, you know, got a really good wardrobe of these classic, beautifully cut pieces. Um, she doesn't go shopping that often. Obviously, Josh gifts her like yeah. um, nice pieces, but she's you know she'll always put a classic look together and then accessorize. So that's her key trick. Um, and then makeup-wise, she's not so experimental, but she kind mm. of knows what suits her and sticks yeah. to it. And I think that's probably as I get older, more what I am working towards mm. having a look that suits you and you know more of a signature style. Whereas when you're younger, I think you experiment more with different looks and different identities and are you still going through that process now so how, how do you feel like personally well I, I think it's still fun to play so obviously like today we just I just put a pink lipstick on <laughs> to go yeah. on camera but you know having a makeup session with you recently was mm -hmm. really really beneficial you know you're you can still be learning new tricks um, but I do think that I have more of a uniform now, you know, I get mm -hmm. up very early and I have to 
get to work and it's good to have a set you know from the fashion point of view it's good to have some certain looks that you can just pull out the wardrobe and it's almost like your go-to uniform yeah and the same with makeup and then during the pandemic obviously lipsticks really disappeared as a trend but I feel like now it's coming back more as we're moving out of the mask phase would you agree with that yeah no I mean everything's everything's like full force makeup now and I I feel like it's a bit like all open to take really interpretation um mm. but people are playing with color again and i think people mm. are just slowly coming back and educating themselves what mm. to do because we spent so long not doing makeup i feel like yeah. everyone's on a bit of like either a rut or mm. um just not sure but and products have changed so some products have gone out yeah. there's plenty of new products and it's just there's just so much going on at the minute i feel like yeah. you know so many more hybrid um, skincare as well. Yes, I agree. I think there's been a bit of a shift away from mm. makeup towards more of a skincare aesthetic, mm. um, which I think is quite interesting. Like less heavy makeup. Yeah. In some areas, you still have the whole Instagram aesthetic as well, but that's so a bit of a different. When it comes to you as an editor, mm. you know, obviously you've seen everything change, but because you're at the top of the round where you produce the shoots, you have to <laughs> deal with all the talent, and so. You know, what makes a good team or what, what do you look for? What can people... Um... Um, well, it comes together through different avenues. So either I will come up with the concept and then, you know, the initial mood board. And then we'll have that interpreted either by the lead creative, whether or not that's the photographer or the makeup artist. Or one of the creatives might come to me with an idea mm. and we'll work with it that way. Um, you know, I look for kind of... I don't know, there's lots of factors. Consistency, creativity, reliability, um, and you know, also just being a good person to work with counts for a lot, because you know what it's like when you're, it really is a team effort, and mm. you have to pull together as a team. So if anyone thinks that they're the big star and you know, causes drama, <laughs> I'm not here for that at all I was gonna with ask my you, magazine. I was um, going to ask you if there was any demands, you know, yeah. we don't, won't name names, but like when you have, either because sometimes celebrities do or talent do only want their team and then if they don't get picked or you know you choose to go with someone else you know why why is that you know for well sometimes you know an artist will have their own glam team but it's nice for the magazine to have their creative input too and what we found is that the record labels and publicists trust us now to recognize uh, Mm. recommend our own team because also it can be beneficial for the artist to take their look in a bit of a different direction, something that's possibly more high fashion. So it's an interpretation of their style. So that's something that we do a lot, is personal styling of celebrities, but developing it down a more editorial route. And mm. for that, sometimes we need to bring on our own creative team. Um, you know, we've had demands where we it's been the artist's makeup artist or nothing, and that's been the condition of the shoot. Um, and sometimes we've said no because there's been the occasional instance where the makeup artist is, you know, the best friend of the mm. talent and they've got a, you know, extortionately high day rate, for example. But if it's non-negotiable, then you mm. do feel like as a publisher, you're slightly over the barrel. You mm. know, if you want to work with this artist, you have to take their makeup artist as well. Okay, so you don't bow down to that. It depends. It depends. You know, if we 
but you know what it's like. London is a it feels like a small city sometimes because everybody knows each other, but there's normally a solution that can be found. Yeah. But I'd like to hear it from your side because, as you, the publisher, and it's your magazine, you know, just maybe explain a bit more about, um, you know, the costs of everything because I think people need to understand that it's only because I worked in publishing and went through my whole process of doing my book that I understood, like, okay, this is the reason why there is no rates. You know, it's yes. like invisible, you know, it's like advertising. Yeah. It's like when people go, what, how much? They don't understand the value, like a page, you know, of like credits, for example, things yes. like that. So maybe. Yeah, so it's, you know, to get into the kind of um, lecturer and marketing side of things, you've got earned, paid, owned and shared media. Mm. So public relations is earned media. So if you can have credits and coverage in a magazine, that's got a lot of value because it's essentially a third party recommendation. Um, whereas if you buy a page of advertising, it's paid media, um, which can still have really good reach, but you know because you paid for it, there's no kind of element of recommendation as well. So you've got the two sides, obviously. You've got your mm. commercial and your editorial side. And you know, you know how it works. The people who are working on yeah. editorial, you don't get your full rate. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of the work might be done as a collaboration. So essentially, yeah. you're working kind of for free. But what the publisher should at least be doing is paying your expenses. You know, covering the production costs of the entire shoot, publicising and marketing the output mm. for the full benefit of the team. And then you would, I, you know on the back of that, have lots of fresh, exciting current work with celebrities, and then you'll be able to get good commercial work for which you should get paid fully. Yeah. You know, for some of the bigger magazines, there will be editorial rates, but- you know, Still very small. Yes, <laughs> but you know, for the sake of full disclosure, yeah. editorial is quite often an unpaid collaboration, which is why I think it's the responsibility of the publisher, mm. you know, to make these shoots short, yeah. Know, sort of maximum four hours. They're not in a difficult location. Publisher pays for the studio, lighting costs, um, all associated all associated costs such as couriers for the stylist. Mm. You know, so essentially, it's a positive, creative environment, and everybody gets something from it. But you know, yeah, it's, it's this whole thing, isn't it? Oh, for free! But actually, when you're in it and you've been doing it for so long, especially you know, for us, where you know maybe 20 years in the business, yeah. I guess there's a new generation and they don't quite quite get this whole free, yeah. but it's it's just trying to it's, explain it. Yeah, you know, I think it's, if it's tried not to think about it, it's sort of work done mm, for free. It's exactly. your investment as a collaboration, um, mm. but also don't let yourself be abused, you know. But what you should be looking for as a makeup artist if you're doing editorial is some element of creative input which you wouldn't get on a commercial shoot necessarily. So you mm. might be given a strict brief, yeah. which you have to follow. But if you're doing editorial, I really want to see what my team can do, you know, and what they bring to the table. And then hopefully they'll feel like they have something that they're really proud of that they can put on their website. I mean, like, if you're thinking about what all the casting that you do and the numbers of portfolios mm. and people's work, you know, what makes somebody stand out or you know what advice as you know fresh mm. eyes what do you look out for what will scream to you and go yeah for a I'm makeup book artist that person. Mm. yeah so for makeup artists it's really important to be working with good photographers and good models mm. um, because you know it's sad to say it's very hard to see how somebody how good somebody is if they're working with 
you know, um, less good models or just friends, for example, if you're emerging, um, and not such good photographers as well. You know, it can be hard to see past that. Um, what else do we look for? So, you know, skin is incredibly important. If the person can do good skin, then that's a great start. Also looking at some kind of interpretation of current trends, I think is good. So, you know, if I was, you know, looking for somebody to do the makeup for a mm. spring summer shoot, it might be nice if they've got some ideas already about potential concepts for spring summer um, editorial, for example. So mm. come with ideas yeah. and also have a real depth of knowledge of trends of the fashion industry. So if you know, if you're trying to say, oh, you know, let's do a radart look, you know, yeah. then you know what that means from this season, for example. And you can look at that all online on Vogue.com, um, looking at beauty roundups, resources like WGSN or LSN Global, if you have access to those. Mm. Um, are very, very good as well. So trend research. There's been a massive, massive shift. So I remember when I launched a digital magazine mm. years ago, and it was the second string to the print magazine. Yeah. Initially, we struggled to get good talent for digital, but that is not the case anymore. I think people see that there's almost more value in digital because of search engine optimization, also organic SEO um, mm. is really important. Having those link backs on the internet you know, people think of the internet as being a transitory place, but it's not. Those links are on there for, you know, posterity until they're taken down. So, mm. whereas a print magazine might have a limited distribution. So, with Phoenix, we've not printed uh, during the pandemic because mm. distribution was fairly unfeasible. And nobody wanted to, yeah. type, you know, pass around physical objects. But that's still the goal to bring it back as more of a book magazine hybrid. But for now, we're pushing out, you know, really strong digital content. Um, and in general, yeah, there's been this massive shift towards digital platforms, you know, and really maximizing the capabilities of the digital space. So looking at more interactive media, mm. video. So also maximizing content from a shoot. So if you're doing a stills shoot, you should also be getting some kind of video or behind the mm. scenes or something. And I think that's probably something that you've seen as well. You know, If you're taking the time and trouble to put together an amazing photo shoot, why not make sure you capture yeah. as much as possible <laughs> to, uh, yeah, to have content to push out? Um, but have you, um, so obviously you've touched on the advice there. I mean, is there anything that you, I've learned through this whole process now, not only just before from doing the magazine, mm. from the print to the digital, to not doing print, the digital mm. has gone forward. So, you know, how is it looking mm. now, like in terms of investment or mm. the way the, the clients are looking yeah. at it? I think if you, I think it's important to be an early adopter mm. and that's one of the, you know, most beneficial things small independent brands can do because if you're working for a big multinational corporation you can't make those strategic changes very quickly mm. whereas if you're small you can be much more reactive so you know with me in phoenix magazine we wanted to do a rebrand we wanted to bring in these like new digital platforms mm. we could just make that decision and roll with it um, you know, and if it doesn't work, that's fine. So we've done a few things over the years that sort of phased in and moved around. Um, but being really aware of 
new technology, new trends. So at the moment, you know, the, the buzzwords are yeah. things like virtual try-on, augmented reality mm. as well. So that's a big thing that we're seeing, you know, so much talk about the metaverse, yeah. both within the industry and in my lectures yeah. at the London College of Fashion. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I find working for the university so interesting because we're you know, really looking at the forefront of academic research yeah. as well. And then you bring that in with the industry knowledge. And I feel like, you know, it gives me a really good understanding of what's current. So what can you share about that metaverse on, on you know, about makeup and beauty? Because in my head, I'm like, okay, it's very um, futuristic or, you know, um, like Il Maquillage, for example, mm. was one of the first adopters in terms of getting the public mm. to go, oh, I'm going to try, answer all these questions and bloom. They send yeah. you the product and mm. then there's loads of people going, wow. But then what I found was, okay, at that point of time, from what I asked for, mm. it's perfect. But then like maybe a couple of weeks down the line, I try it on again. I'm like, oh, actually, it doesn't really work right now. So, you yeah. know, what are you learning from the metaverse that people could so should know about? The metaverse is interesting. I mean, I haven't seen so many good um, beauty uh, uses of it yet, but there has been some really good augmented reality versions. So, again, instigated by the pandemic, when you know you couldn't go into a shop and try colours mm. on because they didn't, yeah. you know, want people spreading products around. So yeah. that really brought the technology forward in terms mm. of sort of um, being able to try on different shades of colours of lipsticks and things like that. So I think that's still popular. Um, and that will continue to be popular. So it's it started almost better with beauty, and now it's being rolled out to fashion. Mm. In terms of metaverse, um, there's been you know some good shows within the metaverse. We had mm. Metaverse Fashion Week recently. It was a little bit of a bumpy start for them, and they had some technical issues. But again, yeah. being right at the forefront of technology, things are going to happen. Um, so. I think there's potential for using these sort of centralized metaverse spaces mm. as a showroom. So the Roberto Cavalli mansion, which you can access from their website, is really fun. Oh. And that's a nice example of how to showcase product within a virtual 3D space. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's got interactive elements like music. Obviously, Cavalli sell more than just fashion. They have homewares, lifestyle goods mm. as well. So it's kind of an immersive 3D showroom that you can go in and walk yeah. around and experience the brand. And there's the potential for doing that with beauty products. And another mm -hmm. thing that we're seeing with virtual try-on is um, people being able to upload photos of themselves mm. to do with um, try-on. So yeah. a lot of companies at the moment, you input your height and your weight and your age and your gender, for example, mm. and you can visualize the garment on you. Um, you know, I'm sure companies must be doing this already, but for the beauty, from the beauty perspective, uploading pictures of yourself yeah. and trying on different um, makeup colours. If it's not been done already, it's about to, <laughs> it's about to happen, I'm sure of it. No, but, um, you know, we're, we're obviously open to that world because we're quite mm. creative, but like the normal Tom mm. Joe down the road mm. won't even have a clue. You know, they barely use Google or Zoom or anything like that. So mm. what's your thoughts on realistically because yeah you've been in it you've got to also um offer your stuff to to them as well yeah 
So from a marketing, from the marketing trends side, and stop me if this is getting too detailed. No, 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 it's so interesting. Um, So classically in marketing, you had what's called two moments of truth, which is where you would discover the product. The first moment of truth is where you discover the product on the shelf and you see the packaging. Mm. And that's the first time you engage with it. The second time is when you take it home and you try the product and you're either pleased or disappointed. But... Since the advent of the digital age, there's now what's called Google's zero moment of truth, mm. which is basically the premise, and I'm sure everyone will have think of examples of how this happens. Before you buy a product, normally online, mm-hmm. you will do some element of research and you will Google it, right? right. Mm-hmm. So in your head, you have an initial shortlist of products that maybe you were considering. So say you wanted to buy a lipstick, you might have four brands of lipstick that you were thinking about. Mm. So what you'll do is you'll do some initial research online and do some product comparisons, looking at different attributes, prices, for example, and then you'll either add or subtract products from the shortlist and then go through and either make the purchase online or think about making it offline. So in terms of internet use, I think we've reached this saturation point now where, you know, that people do this level of research for pretty much yeah. every kind of product. I mean, there's there are essentially two kinds of purchasers: those that are kind of that have high elaboration, right. which are more expensive items like luxury items, mm-hmm. for example, or things that are low elaboration, mm-hmm. which might be buying a soft drink from a newsagent. You know, you don't stand there and agonise over the brand for hours. You just make a quick purchase. Um, but things like beauty and fashion, because they're transformational items, there's normally this more um, more engagement with the concept. So you would tend to do more research online, which is why it's so important to have, you know, import, uh, product descriptions and content marketing about your different products and services. Hmm. <laughs> no, that's good. Good facts. Um, is there anything else uh, for you? Um, well, what is your, your plans? Gosh, well, you know, the magazine is still a great passion. So my plan is to bring that back in print as a book magazine mm-hmm. hybrid. Um, I'm currently working on my book, which is taking up a lot of my time at the moment. Yeah. So that should be out awesome 2023. Mm-hmm. And then I'm lecturing and I'm, I've been thinking about doing a PhD oh, <laughs> wow. at the university. And, you know, still training the horses. Yeah. And what else? I don't know. Um, yeah, just always being creative, really. Well, okay, so last question that I want to ask you is, what is the power of makeup? Sorry. Ask everybody, because everyone comes makeup. up with different. Yes. What does it mean? For so you? for me, it's transformational, the same way that a phoenix is, you know, symbolizes transformation. You know, and I think it's an incredibly powerful tool that men and women and everybody in between can use to express their identity. And ultimately, that's kind of the whole point of fashion and style. You know, it's communicating who you are as a person to the outside mm-hmm. and you can use it to either fit in or stand out, which I think is, you know, but once you have that level of engagement that you know what certain things mean, you know, mm. if you do a little flick, cat eye flick and the red lipstick what does that mean as opposed to something more color pop and neon you know 
and that's how you can style your looks. Okay, so after all these years working、mm. with、uh, makeup artists,、um, what have you learned? Anything that stands out that you're like, wow, I wouldn't have got that anywhere else, but from an expert. Well, the trick you taught me recently was a bit of a game changer. So I love. I didn't pay you for this, by the way. <laughs> yes, no. Like, you know, because you sometimes you feel like your skill level plateaus and you're stuck doing the same old routine.、Um, but for me, I love a strong eyebrow, a bit of a power brow. And you told me to pencil in the bottom of the eyebrow,、um, or use yeah a bit of powder and then brush it up. So it looks more natural, but it also gives a bit of a more strong anchor to it.、Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just checking. We make up. I always leave it to open to interpretation to the person. You know, I, I can always、yeah. give you the tool, but it's down to you how you see it. So yeah. Also, you taught taught me like less is more. I think you know,、um, if you do it well, and that's what I think is great about your makeup on camera, and why we don't need so much retouching is because. If you go in with a bit of a light touch, it looks much more natural, you know. So you just fix what needs fixing, you know, little pimples or whatever.、Mm. But you, if you cake it on, it can t- it can look really bad in post. So yeah, keep it natural. Mm-hmm.